part two of our three-part series on how to raise more money at your pro-life fundraising event. The Love Times 2 podcast starts now. Welcome to 139, the official podcast of Love Times 2. Here is your host, Mike Victor. Hey, welcome back to the Love Times 2 podcast. This is part two of a very special series that's really dedicated to uh, everyone who's listening who has something to do with a pro-life fundraising dinner, banquet, uh, reception, uh, some type of an event like that. This is really geared to help you raise more money for your ministry uh, so that you can be more effective in loving every mom and every baby, no matter what. Uh, that's our mission. Uh, and if that's your mission, uh, hey, we want to applaud what you're doing. And hopefully these tips will be helpful to you in uh, just making your event more productive. And you know what? You may be listening to these tips and uh, you are light years more experienced than I am on it. And that's wonderful. Uh, So I would like to hear if you have tips that you don't hear included in this series, let me know about them and I'll be happy to pass those along. And you can send those to uh, podcast at lovetimes2.org. Remember, lovetimes2 is love, the letter X, the number 2.org. Send those along my way, and I'd love to hear from you on that. And also, just a note on this, you're going to hear a lot of tips. You may, If you listen to the first part of this uh, series, uh, and, and even today as we go through tips 11 through 20, uh, you may be thinking, wow, some of this doesn't seem like it's related to raising more money at all. I mean, some of the stuff you're talking about seems you know really basic, and it is basic. And what I hope that you grasp as we're walking through this entire series is that everything ties together. Your fundraising event is a mosaic of a lot of different things. So on one hand, you may think that uh, something like ordering the caterer to stop clearing dishes when your keynote speaker begins, you may think that's just silly. Why am I including that in you know, this discussion of 30 insider tips. Well, because I do believe it is directly related to fundraising. If your folks at your dinner are distracted from what the speaker is sharing with them by this rattling of dishes and, and all this kind of stuff going on, that takes away from your banquet. And anything that takes away from your dinner event, banquet event, reception event, by distracting people is something that unfortunately is going to affect your fundraising. So all of these tips do have uh, relevance to the overall mosaic picture of what your fundraising event looks like. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into today's list of tips 11 through 20 that uh, hopefully these will be helpful to you as well. So let's start with 11, uh, tip number 11, and that is um, I encourage you to use music and to use it creatively and productively for your fundraising event. Now, there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. I think it's a great idea if you have the budget to absorb this. And some of you listening, you don't have the budget to do it. So I get that. If you have the budget to do it, I would be looking at bringing in a well-known a contemporary Christian artist to perform at your event. And uh, I can tell you that when you have a professional on stage uh, versus someone that is not professional, the difference is very noticeable, very clear. In addition to that, you create drawing power because you have somebody who's coming in that uh, many of your donors recognize. And they may be coming because that uh, musician has drawn them in. They want to hear that person perform. And uh, I, I will say that I know there are individuals that uh, look at this as wow we don't want to we don't want to spend money on somebody to come in and do music and you know I totally get that if you don't have the budget to do it 
totally get it. If you do have the budget to do it, I wouldn't necessarily, and again, this is your decision, uh, it's your board's decision, it's your leadership team's decision on this, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily rule it out just because you're paying somebody to come in and do music. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? Uh, let's let's think about this logically. It's just like when we were talking about uh, speakers in our previous uh, tips uh, in part one. Um, don't discount somebody to come in and do music because it's going to cost you money. Yes, you will spend money to bring a professional in. And oftentimes, uh, they're willing to cut you a really good deal. I've had that uh, on numerous occasions. Um, and if not, then you move on to another speaker or another singer, I guess I should say. But if you are paying somebody, don't look at that as there's something wrong about paying somebody to come in and do music. Look at it from this perspective. If you are investing in a professional individual to come in who's going to increase your attendance and someone who is going to elevate your evening and move people emotionally, that is an investment in your fundraising. It's not throwing money after a musician as if there's something you know wrong about that. Um, now, you know again, it, it depends on your budget. If you can't afford a professional to come in, then certainly look for somebody in your community who could come in and do music for your event. Now, I will, I will put a disclaimer on this. Um, I've used music effectively and I've used it uh, very ineffectively as well. One of the things to look out for, if you're going to incorporate music into your event, one of the things to look out for, I'm just telling you right now, is you need to very clearly define if that person's going to do one song or two songs or whatever it is that you want. You need to define that very clearly. I would never advise you to bring a, a singer or a group in and say, just do what you feel led to do. The reason I don't advise that will lead into situations, because I've done it, I've had this happen to me, it leads into situations where a group or an individual will come in and they'll just think, I just know everybody here wants to hear 30 to 45 minutes of, of my music. That is not what you want for your fundraising event. That becomes awkward. It drags your evening down. It drags your evening out. You don't want that. And so realistically, I think two maybe three songs is what you want. And if it's a professional musician, then uh, what I would do with that is probably have a mini set of two songs early in the program, and then you have one song just prior to your keynote speaker. Okay, You don't want to do a song at the end of the event. Uh, I'm not a fan of that because at the end of the event, your fundraising appeal should have already gone down. Your speaker's done. For everybody in the room, the event's over with. They really don't want to hang around for another five minutes to hear another song. I, in fact, I've seen situations in which that has occurred. Uh, professional musicians were on the stage finishing the event with a song, and people were just leaving for the exits. In fact, uh, not only did I see that, that was an event that I produced, and I was embarrassed for the artist on stage, and you could just tell everybody was like, hey, the evening's over with, we want to leave, um, and uh, so don't put uh, music in an awkward position like that. Maybe uh, music, just instrumental music as people are leaving, but again, if you're going to go with music for an event, I think it's a great idea because it can move people emotionally, but be very limited on it, be very firm with whoever's doing your music, give them the constraints that you're dealing with, that they are dealing with that they're expected to follow and uh, use that music sparingly two 
two songs maybe early in the program. If it's a professional person, one right before the keynote speaker. If it's a non-professional, then I would recommend just one song and that that one song be somewhere in the program where it leads into and leads up to the keynote speaker. Okay, enough with that. We're going to jump on to tip number 12. Uh, And this is for all of you out there who uh, you just scratch your head when you get proposals from caterers on how expensive desserts are. And then you have that discussion around the board table of do we need to provide desserts or not? Do people expect it, not expect it, all that other kind of stuff. Now, uh, I've known speakers that, uh, national speakers who have told me that having some type of dessert always increases giving at an event. I don't know if that's true or not. I kind of doubt they did a scientific uh, study on that. Uh, But that's sort of the rule of thumb that if you provide something that is, you know, just a closure to the dinner, that people appreciate that, puts them in a better mood, and you raise more money for the event. However, desserts can get really, really expensive. Now, there are a couple of ways to get around that. If you are using uh, the buffet system, like I mentioned before, things like cobbler, uh, are very inexpensive. They normally are very inexpensive. But even if that is something you don't want to go that route with it, uh, there's one event that I go to every year, actually, uh, that a friend of mine produces, and they do uh, truffles. They do these high-end truffles, just small little things. They're wrapped in cellophane with a really cool ribbon on them, and it doesn't look like much, but these things taste incredible. I mean, they're absolutely awesome. And uh, you, you, know, you have those truffles at your place. That's your dessert. And you don't need some towering, you know, big pie or, or some type of creation there, uh, there at each table. Um, have high-end truffles. They look nice. Uh, they look ritzy. They don't cost that much, and they're delicious, and people appreciate them. I mean, they're really they're really a, a great way to go low-cost but still provide a high-quality dessert. So remember that. Use truffles uh, instead of a very high-end dessert. You're going to save yourself some money on the food cost of everything, and as you reduce your pure cost for the event and things like food, desserts, and all that kind of stuff, that increases your net at the end of the evening. It ties into fundraising. Now, tip number 13, use live reception music. Uh, When people are arriving at your event, uh, it's just a nice touch to have live music on stage. Piano music is always great. You can have classical music on stage. Maybe you want to go with an ensemble. Maybe you want to get really out there on the edge and have bluegrass. Um, I probably wouldn't recommend that for most folks, but uh, hey, I'd like it, but I don't know if anybody else would. Uh, But something that just is a gentle... Um, you know, some type of music from on stage that just, uh, you know, when you walk into a room and there's nothing going on and all you hear is, you know, that noise and conversation and so forth, it puts a nice uh, tone to the evening as people are arriving. So piano music is probably top of that list. Now, if you don't have someone locally uh, that can come in and do music for you, uh, this is something that you can just have your sound guy pop in a CD of music. That's an easy way to do it. You can do that as well. But have Having reception music prior to the start of the event just helps to prepare a nice, pleasant transition to the evening for folks who are arriving and are there to enjoy the evening. They're there because they're motivated to support you, and this is part of building that motivation to write a check uh, for you later on in the evening. Okay, So here's tip number 14. After your event, and I'm jumping ahead because some of these are before event. Uh, I'm I'm jumping all over the place here. I get that. But uh, number 14, after your event, do a post-event survey. You want to know how folks felt about your event? Uh, There's no better way than to ask them. And nowadays, there are a lot of different options for doing that. In fact, uh, if you use an email provider like Constant Contact, they have uh, survey uh, stuff that's already built in to their software. 
So you can survey uh, all of your donors, for example, who gave during the event, or if you just want to survey your table host or whatever, and you can ask anything you want to. Uh, what did they think about the program? Uh, was it uh, too long, too short? What they think? What did they think about the speaker? Uh, what did they think about the food? What suggestions do they have for next year? And uh, just a post-event survey gives everybody an opportunity to weigh in after the survey or after the event, and it, you will glean some interesting stuff that's going to come back that um, some of it you probably already knew, but you're going to find some stuff out that people are thinking. For example, I did a a reception event uh, for several years, and it was strictly a uh, a reception and we had just a reception type of seating available uh, which meant you had a lot of high stools and other stuff in the room and one of the things that came back on our post event survey on that uh, was folks really wanted a full dinner I mean they were coming it was after work and uh, we found that some of the reception seating wasn't just didn't come up to par people didn't want to sit on a high bar stool balancing food on their lap at this event they wanted a dinner and they didn't care if they had to pay more for dinner they wanted a dinner event and that surprised us a little bit but we switched that event up and we made it a dinner but that's the type of thing that you're going to find out when you do a post-event survey if you don't want to do it online that's which is what i prefer highly recommend you could also do the hard copy just mail a survey to people and uh, have them send it back in but in today's world you know use the uh, survey mechanisms that's probably associated with your email software that you use now here's the tip number 15 Use a table host or sponsor system as your primary way to sell reservations for the event versus selling individual tickets. Now, this is a huge thing, uh, particularly if you want to grow an, grow an event. Let me explain, first of all, the difference between a table host and a table sponsor. Table host is someone who says, I'm going to commit to that table of 10 people. There are 10 seats at the table. I'm going to commit to that table, and uh, I'm going to pay for myself and my spouse maybe and and a couple of other guests but the remaining guests will all pay for their own tickets okay that's a table host the host is saying i'm going to fill the table i'm going to pay for my tickets my guests are going to pay for their tickets now the difference between that and a sponsor is a table sponsor says i'm going to pay right up front for all 10 of those seats and that table is uh, sponsored by either an individual or a company or a church whatever it might be Uh, but the sponsor pays for all of the seats and then they have to fill those seats up. Now, compare that to if your event is is solely selling individual tickets and that's your focal point on that because it's just reality. Most people, if it's just an individual ticketed event, they're going to buy tickets for themselves and that's it. They may invite others to come, but they're you know basically going to say, I'm committing to two tickets or one ticket or three tickets or whatever it is. So when you're selling a table, Whether it's through a host or whether it's through a sponsor, you're selling 10 seats at a time instead of two tickets at a time. Hope that makes sense. Now, you still want to offer individual tickets uh, because there's always going to be individuals. They they don't want to fill a table up. They just want to come by themselves or come with their spouse, and that's it. They don't want to bring other guests. But if you drive the host and the sponsor system, that's the way you grow your event. And if you're doing an event that people are really fired up about and it reaches a tipping point where it becomes a tradition in your community that everybody wants to be there, Uh, What you're going to find are the host and sponsors sometimes uh, will become uh, host and sponsors of additional tables the next year. I've seen this happen. People come. They're really impressed with the event. They were so fired up. They say, next year, we're going to have two tables or three tables or four tables. That's when your event really starts to grow off the charts. So drive the table host or sponsor 
system instead of the ticketing system. And uh, the, your expectation is to sell tables, not just two tickets. You still want to have the individual tickets available. And also realize that you're going to find with a lot of your sponsors sometimes that uh, they'll sponsor the table. But as you get closer to the event, uh, every one of us that's done events like this, you get the calls from folks that say, hey, I've got 10 seats, but I'm, I'm only filling six of them. Put whoever you want in the other four seats. That's fine. Well, that mitigates, uh, you know, your impact on your bottom line in the sense that a sponsor's already paid for those four seats. So you want to fill them if you can. But if somebody calls you at 10 o'clock on the day of the event and says, I have four seats available tonight. Can you fill them? Chances are you're probably not going to fill them, but at least those seats are already paid for. You don't have to reach in your pocket and pay for those four seats. The sponsor's already paid for them. Okay, let's move on to tip number 16. Uh, If you use a host for each event, and I do recommend this, this is actually another way to grow your event. If you have someone in your community who is the honorary host for that year, that person uh, typically sort of emcees the event. If they're not comfortable emceeing, then you know that's something that they can farm out to somebody else. But when you have a host for the event, that host, uh, just by way of their name being attached to the, the event, let's say uh, Mr. and Mrs. Joe Smith are the honorary host for this year, then that opens up all their circles of influence uh, folks that know uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith that want to come to the event because they're host for the event. So, and then next year you have a different set of hosts that bring different circles of influence. And every time you do that, you draw more people and you tap into more circles of influence. Now, if you're going to use that system, then I strongly recommend that uh, whoever your hosts are for next year, that you have them as, if you want to call them vice chair or whatever for the event, they should be at the table. They should be at the event. They should be working alongside this year's host so that next year they already know the system and they're ready to go as the host for next year. And then as they're ready to go for the host, you've recruited host for the uh, year after that. So you have this uh, continuing uh, wheel that's turning here where you have host and then you have vice chairs who are always preparing to be the host at future events. That's a that's a really um, strategic way, uh, again, to tap into more circles of influence and to make sure that you're, you're having this uh, succession of host uh, for your event. Now, number 17, this may sound like a really minor thing, and it may be, but it also could be a very big thing. If you use table envelopes, and I always recommend that. I don't recommend having individual envelopes at the table and then having each individual turn those in somewhere else later. Um, what I recommend is that you have at least a 9 by 12 envelope at the table that should have pledge forms in them. And um, those envelopes, after everyone has filled out their pledge form, uh, they should return those into this 9 by 12 envelope. And then one person at that table is responsible for that. We're going to talk about that uh, either coming up here or in, the, in part three of this series. But here's a little trick on this. Uh, let's say you have 50 tables at your event. Uh, I've done events where let's say there are 50 tables at the event and when it's all said and done, everything's gathered up the next day, uh, volunteers and staff are going through and opening the envelopes up and all this sort of stuff. And there are like 48 envelopes there. And panic sets in because you're wondering what happened to the two envelopes that are missing. You know you had 50 tables. You only have 48 envelopes. Well, here's one of the ways that you approach that. On each 9 by 12 envelope, uh, you put on the back of that envelope in the upper left-hand corner, let's let's say, a number that corresponds to the table number. So if it's table number 1, you've got a 1 on that envelope. Table 49, you've got 49 on the envelope. You're asking what on, what on earth can that possibly do to help me out? Well, here's the deal. If you're 
you're missing an envelope, it's going to become very apparent when you line the envelopes up and say, hey, here here are what's supposed to be envelopes 1 through 50, but we're missing two envelopes. So you just simply look at what numbers do you have, and those that are missing, guess what? You've identified your missing uh, envelopes. So what do you do? You look at who was the host or the sponsor or who was seated at the table. Let's say it's table 48. You don't have the envelope for table 48, so you call the folks at table 48 and you find out where the envelope's at. Uh, and that actually we've done that before. I've done it in events that, that I've been uh, a part of. I've had staff had to call someone, and, they, and lo and behold, you'll find out people said, you know what, I forgot about it. I was talking with friends. I carried it home with me, and I've got it at home. I'll send it back in. So again, this is one of those things that may sound like, why would you even think about putting numbers on, you know, that's exactly why. You want to know where all those envelopes are if you don't get them all back in uh, that evening. Okay, let's move on to tip number 18. At the end of the event, uh, and this gets back to what we had talked in part one of the series. Remember I talked about uh, making sure that you have one person working with a caterer, and at that one person, make sure that the caterer stops clearing tables uh, at the point in the program when you want them to stop clearing tables. Here's another part of the program where you want your caterer uh, to hold back on clearing tables until the person you've assigned to the caterer gives the caterer the green light to do that. Okay, uh, so why would we want to suggest this type of thing? Well, here's exactly why. Uh, I've done events where the uh, the evening's over with, and you'll have, and this is especially true of larger events. I've seen it at smaller events, but you'll just have this uh, whole swarm of caterers who will come out of the kitchen, and uh, they just start to sort of indiscriminately pull stuff off the table, and normally they have the big trash barrels there, so food and stuff, and if you have program books that are left over, and Anything that's left over on the table, they just start pitching it into the trash containers so that they can get the dishes uh, off and they can get the tablecloths off and all that kind of stuff. That's what caterers do at the end of an event. Uh, the problem with that is that uh, if you have, the, again, these 9 by 12 envelopes on the table that somebody sat there and that uh, envelope was full of checks – or it's full of uh, response cards where people have written their credit card numbers on it and stuff like that. If you have that stuff on the table, um, a lot of times there are caterers who don't care. They're, they're just ripping everything off the table, throwing it in the trash. If it's plastic, if it's if it's paper or whatever, if they see an envelope there, uh, they don't know that that envelope is, it needs to be saved, and it could very well just end up in the trash. So you want to make sure your caterer knows that you don't want any tables cleared until you give them a green light. Now, you need to work with your caterer on this, you can't hold your caterer back for 30 minutes so that everybody has a conversation before the, you give the green light. We're talking maybe five minutes after the conclusion of the event. By that time, you should have a system in which you've collected all the envelopes, and then your person with the caterer can say, hey, green light, you guys can do whatever you need to do with the tables. But I'm just telling you, you need to be very cautious on this. Make sure that your caterer just doesn't come out and uh, start clearing stuff off because you may get envelopes thrown away that you didn't want thrown away. Okay, so uh, here's tip number 19. Again, this sounds like a really, really simple thing, and it is, but it has a direct impact on fundraising. Make sure you have pens at the table. Either have pens at the table, you can put them in the envelope, but the preference is you have pens, and you have pens in a uh, color-matching uh, you know, whatever the 
the color of the pan is, it matches your scheme for the evening. But you have those pans at the table, and you have uh, at least, uh, I would put four to six pans at the table. I don't think you need to put ten. If there are ten seats, uh, normally you're going to have couples that are writing checks and so forth. But uh, I would put four to six pens at each table. That way they're available. You'd be surprised at how many people come to an event like this and they get your form. They don't have a pen and they look around and you know they may ask somebody to use theirs or whatever, or they may say, I don't have a pen. I can't fill this out. Uh, make it easy for them and have pens at the table, have them lying out there. Uh, that's something that is so simple. It's stuff I've overlooked so many times. Um, last year, I did an event, showed up at the event. Everything was ready to go. You know, just looked like we were all on board with everything. Going to be a great event. Dawned on me, there are no pens. And I had to send somebody out to a store to get some pens and bring them back so that we had pens at the table. So make sure you have pens at the table. Small thing could be a very big thing in effect uh, that affects your fundraising for the evening. And then uh, number 20, when you have a pledge form for the evening, whatever that looks like, and I do have actual uh, pledge forms I'd be happy to share with you, and you are more than welcome to use those as a template for any of your events. Uh, just contact me at podcast at lovetimes2.org and say, hey, send me the pledge card that you mentioned just as a template and uh, you're, you're welcome to use that but when you use a pledge card for an event uh, just make sure that you always include on that card the options of either bill me and the option of I want to make my gift uh, via a credit card this evening. And if you do that, uh, you're going to have to have the space for their card number, uh, the space for their expiration date, space for the three-digit code on the back. Uh, But that gives the additional options for individuals who – don't have a check that night, uh, or they want to pray about how much they're going to give to the event. They just want to take it home, and, and they'd rather just send you something, uh, you know, in the mail or or make a commitment after they've given it more time and consideration. So you want to make sure that you include on that card, hey, bill me in a few days. I want to give a hundred dollars. Bill me in a few days, or really would prefer to have this gift. Uh, just placed on my credit card, and here's how you do that. Now, I know some folks don't like to put the credit card option on it. Um, I'm not sure why. If your donor wants to give and that's how they want to give, you need to make that available to them. Maybe you don't make gifts uh, via your credit card, uh, and that's your decision to do it, but you're going to have donors who want to make their gift via their credit card uh, for a variety of reasons, and so you need to make sure that option is available. And then I also recommend you include on that an option for them to uh, pledge over a period of time. So do they want to be a monthly donor? Do they want to make a quarterly donation? Uh, what does that look like? I don't know, but the more options you give someone on on that card, the more options that uh, you help that donor have access to to make a gift to your organization. And again, that directly impacts uh, your fundraising for the night. So you may have someone at your event that they can't write a $120 check tonight to support what you're doing, but they could do $10 per month. But if you're not giving them that option, then they don't have that option to take advantage of. So uh, anyways, I'm going to close out uh, part two here of these uh, top 30 insider tips uh, to increase the uh, funding that you raise at your fundraising event. These were tips 11 through 20. If you didn't get a chance to listen through to tips 1 through 10 in part 1, I encourage you just to go back to the previous episode and listen to those. And then next time, we're going to talk about tips 21 to 30. 
hey, I hope you're gleaning some beneficial stuff from this discussion. This is just uh, the gift of Love Times 2 to help all of you who are out there working to love every mom and every baby, no matter what, to raise more money for your ministry so that we can make the world a better place for moms and babies. Hey, never forget, change the culture and the politics will follow. This has been 139, the official podcast of Love Times 2. Join us in the journey at lovetimes2.org. That's love, the letter X, and the number 2, dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening.